and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are here today with Daryl Gregory, the award-winning author of specifically today, Nine Last Days on Planet Earth, a short story that he released on Tor.com in September. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, you two. This is great. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we start in, we we have already recorded a conversation between Karen and I. So that conversation has it has the full plot summary of Nine Last Days, as well as Kidge Johnson's The Privilege of the Happy Ending, and we will also be interviewing Kidge separately. So if you're curious about the story, for one, go to Tor.com and read it because it's free there. And for two, mm -hmm. listen to our previous podcast because it will be quite illuminating. But mm -hmm. as we start this conversation with Daryl specifically, do you mind if I ask just, I mean, where did the idea for telling this story and telling the story in the vignette structure that it has, where did that come from for you? Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's it's a story about different rates of experiencing the world, plant time, you know, planet time, human time. I got this idea that there to try to do an a person's entire life in one sh one story as short a period as I could do, you know, just show these little vignettes throughout their life. And because this apocalypse that's happening is happening in the background and sort of intersects with the person's life over the extent of their entire life, and you're not going to get to the end of it. You're not going to be able to finish anything. And I was struck by that, that a lot of times mm -hmm. these apocalypses fit into – uh, a human life or human speed. I thought, let's just have a story where that's impossible, where they're never going to um, get the total solution and we're not going to get full resolution. And so, yeah, I, I think that's where it came from, was trying to figure out how do I tell the entire life in one short story? And, you know, doing it in vignettes seemed to, little sections of that person's life seemed to be the way to into that. Mm -hmm. And what I found fascinating, um, and and Karen is actually the one who kind of, you know, alerted me to this, is that you really do have scenes that show um, some of the, the biggest changes in a person's life. So it looks as if the scenes are kind of front-loaded, mostly, um, you know, as a child and growing up and so forth and up to like college. And then as you get, as you get to the older part, um, the older years, it seems more spaced out. But in a way, those are the years where we don't experience life as differently, um, where we are, we're sort of like um, our personalities have kind of formed and settled and so forth. So I, I did find it really fascinating that you had this almost like amazing gallop because it, it, it kind of mirrored um, how we experience time as well, where when you're young, it just seems like, you know, everything is happening all at once. Um, and and right. was that intentional or was that um, connected to the, the other little neat trick that we saw you do? <laughs> yeah. The, so the other trick is, so I was trying to get at this idea of the way we experience life. And certainly as I get older, things seem to be accelerating at a frightening pace. Um, <laughs> not, not, not everyone's life slows down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say that life slowed down. I said in a way we do because our personalities get settled and, and who we are becomes more fully formed. But our, we point. ourselves change a lot when we're younger. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so, but, but also I feel like time does pass faster, you know, and a lot of it's just the way, you know, we experience percentages of life, you know, when you're 10 years old 
a year is one tenth of your life. And when you're 50, you know, it's just one, one <laughs> of your life. And it's so I was trying to get at it. And so the reason I use the Fibonacci sequence is I I stumbled across it and I thought, oh, the Fibonacci sequence lets it gives me a structure to um, show this acceleration through time and the, the way that he's experiencing time differently. So the Fibonacci sequence for the non-math uh, people out there is just just a simple sequence where you you can start with zero or one and you add adding the previous number to it. So let's say we start with two or like it'll start with like one and two and then one plus two equals three and then three plus two equals five and then five... Uh, plus three equals eight. And so the I have intervals of that many years happening all throughout, throughout their life. And so, yeah, there's big chunks that um, get left out. So it's going very mm -hmm. slow and dense in the beginning of this person's life and then um, accelerating out. We're getting these, you know, vast gaps of time. Mm -hmm. And and this is the great thing about writing short stories too. Like in a novel, you know, one thing I really love about the the short story form is you can be elliptical like this. You can have, you can demand that the reader do more work and fill in more of the gaps and just give a little bit clues and have them pay closer attention to just the small bits of information that the story is giving you. Um, where in a novel, I feel like I have to explain more. I have to cover more <laughs> ground. Um, in a short story, you could just sort of say, look, I'm going to throw you in the deep end. We're going to pick up the scene that happens 30 years later, and you'll have mm -hmm. to infer a lot of what happens. Mm -hmm. I find that a very rewarding approach because what it means is that you get to reread the story over and over and over again. And just sort of like you fill in things for yourself. You, you know, there's not a line that's wasted. You know, we were, we were remarking about that. There were, there were just these little background things even about stuff falling apart um you know at, at the sides of of their experience you know talking about not having to rely on the roadside restaurants and talking about checkpoints and these are just like little passing lines but it's so crucial to the overall world building that um you know it's 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 not at all a filler yeah. Right. Cool. And, and what I love about science fiction readers is that you can give them these little tidbits and they will they mm. will work. They're almost like um uh, the way mystery readers read a mystery, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're alert to those clues and they're assembling a world. They're really active about participating with you. And I love that about um, the science fiction genre. We're used to being clue, following the clues and assembling a world from just little details. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I just love that. So one yeah. one of the questions that I had was, you know, you you give each vignette a very specific year, and that means that you had to choose your starting year very yeah. very specifically. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, having read most of your novels and having read a, a whole good swath of your your short fiction, my impression is that your stories are very grounded in time. Those times where I've seen you do this, where where you start in a specific time. It's never mm -hmm. by accident. So when you started, um, so LT is the main character, and mm -hmm. he is t about 10 in 1975. Am I remembering that correct? Um, yeah. So it's no why... accident that I was born in 1965. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, there you go then. Uh -huh. I, think I need to finish the question. Okay, so that makes oh, sense. So, so yeah. yeah, so you're yeah. you're picking up not and and again you're sort of unfolding this uh science fictional story in the background of basically okay the time frame that you've already experienced 
Right. It's a cheat. It's it's me being very lazy as a writer. Um, I, I wanted to... Economical, uh, please. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, one thing I love about grounding stories in the current world is that you get to, you know, you get to borrow all this detail. And so it's a, it's a weird kind of, this nine last days is a weird kind of story because it, in some ways it's a, it's an alternate history. It's like, okay, these things right, didn't yeah. actually fall in 1975. Uh, and then it extends out into traditional science fiction territory when we get into the future parts. Uh, I just like the idea of reimagining the world, my own history sort of, um, um, I, I thought it would just, I, I thought, especially with how sparse I wanted to be in these scenes, that if grounding it in the real world without having to do a lot of world building, like if I'd started in the future, everything would take a lot more um, uh, mechanics to explain what's going on, where are we, what's happening. So it was easy for me to say, look, we're going to start in this 1975. You can know everything about the world except for this one change that the seeds have come. And we're going to watch how the world changes in the background. Um, and then when we get to the far future stuff, or at least, you know, not really far future, the, the future scenes, mm -hmm. uh, you're already with me. I don't have to explain as much. We're ready to see what happens in the future. Well, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. another neat thing about the structure is that almost by definition, anyone who's capable of reading the story has experienced something of one of the vignettes that you're describing. So I, I was born in 79, so I, I'm conscious of 86, 94, 2007. You know, that, that right. gives me a grounding. Like, I can be like, oh, I remember what was happening then. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you can, and I always love that when, um, when science, uh, this is one thing I really like about alternate history stories is you get this built-in resonance and you see the differences between things. And this probably goes back to uh, Philip K. Dick and Man in the High Castle. I remember that moment in the book when you realize, oh, wait, we're not, I, I knew we were in an alternate history and he gl gets a glimpse of the real world and it's not our universe. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is the badass move. And um, but, so I always like that kind of weird energy you get from comparing it to the current world, to the, to the side world. And also it lets you be, like I said, really economical. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I found um, fascinating, um, and I mean, when you talk about sort of grounding it in the span of your own life, um, this, this is interesting to me as well. The beginning bits have the, what, what works for me in terms of the psychology of the character is there's a kind of self-absorption that you have as a child and adolescent where even if like space scenes are falling from the sky, <laughs> you're, you're still very caught up in things like your parents' divorce and your, your mom's new boyfriend and, and all those other like really family dynamics kind of thing. And um, and I, I think I saw a tweet recently, and I can't track it down, so I, I'm not attributing it properly. I'm so sorry. But somebody found a journal entry from, you know, from 69, where they're talking about, you know, somebody they had a crush on and somebody else who drops a note in their bag and who may have a crush on them and the clothes they're wearing. And then I said, oh, yeah, a man walked on the moon. And it was just a reminder <laughs> of how, you know, your life is like the priority and, and like fantastic things could be happening in the background. And, and, you know, they're there and they kind of filter in, but they're still in a way almost background to you. But then the way that kind of scared me later on is that, you know, we are in a sense looking very much at things like, you know, the destruction of the biosphere and climate change and so forth. And then even when you get to the later bit where he's very clearly working in a very important job 
um, and is engaging directly with it, there's still this almost absence of panic. And I don't want to make it sound like panic should be the right. right response, but it's almost like, you know, he's adjusted to this as if it's a normal thing. And and yes, there's horrible stuff happening, but it's happening to other people on the other side of the world, or it's happening to people who have to, um, you know, don't have the, right. the, the little perk to go through a checkpoint easily. And it's it's actually kind of frightening to me that there's also that very human reaction to, well, this isn't bothering me that much, so I'm just going to keep going. So how much of that was, um, you know, kind of, you know, something that you intended to stress in that, especially the latter part of the life? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a major part of it. I, uh, you know, Karen's read a lot of the short fiction. And so a lot of my stuff has to do with genre. Like I've, I've been a lifetime genre reader. And there is this thing in science fiction where you would think, well, here's the major apocalypse. Of course, this is all people are going to talk about. But as you pointed out, Cake, there's we are living in an apocalypse. We're we are <laughs> living with global climate change. And and there's tons of things going on. And yet we are still annoyed when the Wi-Fi goes out and like my <laughs> coffee's not hot enough. And like all these trivial details, like there's just so many other things going on in your life and you're concerned with your family. And we do acclimate. We are the boiling frog, right? We're in the frog with the with the water heating up like Al, you know, Al Gore showed and inconvenient mm. truth we that's that's the human experience and so you just cannot hold on to the apocalypse especially while it's a slow-moving apocalypse like we have with climate mm. change it's just mm. we're not and a, a part of especially the when we you can't can still cushion yourself we're from not it neurologically wired for it oh go ahead no no just saying especially if we have the means to cushion ourselves from it so as long as we have our own um coping mechanisms as long as as it's not like um di directly affecting us day to day um, we, we find ways yeah. to like not look at the panic all the time. Well, and, and, and Daryl, you specifically said the, the one scene where, um, where they've got a family Thanksgiving and they literally said, we're privileged enough to have the canned cranberry sauce with the ridges still on and, you know, the, the <laughs> sweet potatoes with the marshmallows baked on top. Yeah. I wanted to point out that this is the way I feel. I mean, this is, you know, a, a personal story in that way and that, you know, you know, they're aware that that there's terrible things going on in the world all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of it. You get the news like we're and, and yet you still, you know, have these things where, yeah, you get to have your Thanksgiving and you get to you get to go on airline flights. And it, there's a tremendous disconnect and they're they're aware of it, that they're that they are privileged. And he's aware of his ability to get through checkpoints because he's got a government job. And, you know, I wanted to roll that in. It's like it's a it's about the experience of being. Uh, a privileged person in the apocalypse and still well, you to have sympathy for this person, but he's aware that uh, he's living a privileged life. Now mm -hmm. in that exact same scene is when we learn, somebody says, you must, you must wish that he was still here speaking about LT's husband. Mm -hmm. And, and Doran, you know, dies somehow off screen. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's only alluded to. <laughs> do, do you have in your own mind, how exactly Doran died or, or even for you, is it just, well, you know, bad things were happening and that happened to them? No, exactly. I didn't have to decide. So I didn't. Um, okay. I was wondering. I just, <laughs> That's cool. I like that. I respect that. <laughs> yeah. Right. As a writer, it's like, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't have to know. I just knew that things, people vanish from your lives and suddenly you find yourself a, a Thanksgiving 20 years from now. And, you know, and uh, 
people are gone from your life or your parents are dead or one per one parent is dead and one's still alive. And it's that kind of, you can't, and this is where I love that readers, short story readers will keep up with that. You know, we don't have to explain every little thing. I don't have to have a scene where Doran dies. It's just the, the accelerating jump. I want that sort of sense of like, of being sort of put on the wrong foot. It's like, wait a minute, where, what is happening? And you're jumping mm. through time. And his confusion as he gets older, like in the last mm. scene, you know, yeah. he's even about what is the age of each grandparent? Where am I now? I wanted that kind of sense that the future kind of runs away with you. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. in that last scene, the, it's funny because as a reviewer and especially, you know, doing a little bit of a deep dive into the story um, and, and to be perfectly honest, sometimes as a reviewer, you know, I read so many stories once and I review them for Locus sure. and... And then I move on with my life. And then sometimes I'll come back to, to do a deep dive for a podcast or something else I want to write more intensively. I read it the second time and I'm like, oh my God, I missed every, <laughs> not, not everything, but like, oh, I, I, I changed my reading so much on a second reading that I'm like, oh, is it fair mm -hmm. to read, to, to review anything when I've only read it once? Well, <laughs> yeah. time uh, is, time is of the essence, right? You can't, can't read everything twice. Um, sure, yeah. But if you put a gun to my head with this particular story and said, okay, Karen, write, write the best, you know, if this is your thesis story and you have to write an in-depth and explain every single word in this story, um, <laughs> I'd do my best and I think I would still get a passing grade, but the, the slow-mo plant is in several mm -hmm. scenes, but not all of them. But there's mm -hmm. a way in the very final scene that its presence is felt that made me feel like mm. I didn't perfectly understand what its purpose was in the story. That's what like if you put a gun on my head and said, why is that, why is that entity in this story? I don't think I could totally encapsulate it. So what did, what did slow-mo mean to you? <laughs> so slow-mo is that human like plant. Okay. So I wanted to uh, address a couple things. One, I teach writing a lot and, uh, and I, and I'll cake us too. Like, you cannot like students who say, well, you know, if you go back and you read it again, like, no, you can never demand that readers read it a second time. So <laughs> what you have to do is you have to make sure that they enjoy it the first time through, even reading it, skimming it. You try your darndest to make it enjoyable on the first time through. And then um, you try to have enough density there so that if people do go back, there are things that they will pick up and you hope for. And then also you're trying to keep yourself from being bored. So you put yep. a lot of density in there. Um, and, and you put in things that I know I put in tons of things in, in stories and novels over the years that no one will pick up on. But I have this religious belief that if you put it in, even if no one gets it, they will somehow smell that it seems denser. <laughs> like they, they get a weird sense. That there's mm -hmm. more going on than they think, and so the story feels denser. That's my religious belief. Um, okay. 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 So the secret, the secret origin of the story is slow mo, and that's why he's in the story. So mm. uh, Liza and I, my girlfriend Liza Trombi, uh, she's had to listen to me. I, I, I'm inordinately fond of those windsock guys who are <laughs> outside a car dealership and outside. And uh -huh. I loved. I love, uh, I love, you know, those guys just crack me up. I like, I always think they have like the, they are the happiest people. They're out there jamming and dancing all the time. Um, and they, they sort of crack me up. And if I could watch a television show, just about a family of those guys, uh, that would be great. 
so I had this idea of like, of like a, a plant that was a windsock guy. Um, and I also like this idea that just by sheer accident of evolution, that some plants would propagate if we anthropomorphize them. That ah. that would be they would stumble upon this evolutionary strategy, like, oh wait, something that's anthropomorphized, mm. we sort of will protect and they will not exterminate those plants because oh, they've stumbled goodness. into Yeah. They've stumbled and, into and an evolutionary strategy. And that was something that I really did pick up because I was thinking about other invasive species that, um, you know, because people are like, oh, this is this is nice and decorative or or this is a cute animal or whatever. And then, I mean, when I, I'm sorry, this is going to be a tiny rant. Giant African it. snails kept as pets in Florida. What? I read an article about that <laughs> a while back. And it's like, they are a, a horrible invasive species here. They like, you know, you can't garden without like having to deal with them. And I'm like, who thought that this was a good idea to import this as a pet? But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so it's stuff like that. And, and this is a snail. It's not even like, it's not cuddly. It's not right, like it's a not tree. <laughs> it doesn't look human. It's not like a dancing Groot or something. I mean, it was like, wow. So, so I, I did really like pick up on that and say, yes, it's so true. If somebody can find a way to, to feel fondly towards this invasive species, we are all doomed. <laughs> right. No, exactly. And and I've been reading this book about the evolution of beauty, and I was struck by the fact that these plants are so optimizing, trying to attract just the right pollinators. And, mm. you know, they've 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 twisted themselves into colorful shapes just to attract things and have smells that are attractive. And so I just thought, you know, in evolutionary terms, something that stumbles into something that happens to be attractive to humans, that will bring us. And, and that's the other theme of the book, which is. Uh, the book, the the story is <laughs> the kind of evolution of, of beauty and like what is the purpose of beauty and mm. where is beauty happening in the human brain? Just the like the there's a ongoing theme about the bower birds, which I was reading in this book mm. about evolution, where they are strictly propagate. You know, they're using um, a, an aesthetic sense to lure mates. Uh, mm -hmm. which I thought was just stunning. And it's and it's purely these runaway systems, these evolutionary systems of sexual um, selection can completely run off of aesthetics. It's not, um, I was struck by the argument in the book I was reading was saying the evolution and, you know, the peacock feathers used to be, you know, the, the standard evolutionary uh, explanation for peacock feathers is that, well, it's a it's a signal of fitness that this is a fit male. If they can spend so much energy making these beautiful uh, feathers, then they must be worth uh, mating with. Um, but the theory of female sexual selection is that you know females will just stumble upon an aesthetic choice and they will just start preferring one, and then they will and they will through sexual selection. Uh, males will start displaying that behavior because they get to breed, and it can be a purely aesthetic choice um, can have runaway effects with evolution. And so um, that's the reason why slow-mo became part of the story is I wanted that little point about aesthetics and beauty mm. and the way we think about beauty be into the story. So another reason why I appreciated slow-mo's presence was that I honestly thought that that, that was going to be the shoe that was going to drop. I thought that was going to be the, you know, the kind of the growing menace. And then when you discovered, you know, taking over the whole house and then you just kind of like let it out really, really slowly, like an exhalation and moved on. And I was like, damn, I respect that too. <laughs> because, um, you know, it's not, 
it's not always the 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 kind of the movie magic dun 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 thing that that happens sometimes it's just a very very calm okay this has happened and we have another house and we move on um so but but you know the extent to which as well they projected a lot of their um desires and hopes and fears on this creature that that they could pretend had human movement um mm-hmm. was was right. just an incredible little psychological trick there so um so yeah it was it yeah. was for me both a window and also i was like something's gonna happen it's gonna attack them all it's gonna and it's like no no it's not that kind of story but but it's still really cool <laughs> <laughs> well and you know how this kind of runs away with you talk about runaway evolution is that once you put something like that in a story and maybe for me it was driven you know from okay Winsock man plus the idea about evolution i'm gonna put him in the story and then of course it starts talking to you in the story and you know, the LT's broken relationship with his father and the fact that his father can accept this plant son more than he can accept his own son and find beauty in him. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, that they're protecting this thing through the years, you know, that stuff, you know, uh, is not explicitly stated in the story, but it was mm-hmm. it was something that kept me involved in it. It's like, oh, his father is there alone in the house with this thing that's taken mm-hmm. over the house. And yeah, and it's not a horror story. It's a story about love and it's a story yeah. about coming to terms with beauty. And so mm-hmm. that's that's where I went with it rather than having it be the da-da-da. <laughs> yeah, because it's not attacking him. It's almost embracing him. It's almost like supporting him. Yeah. Yeah. But, you, but you're absolutely right, Karen, because you get an ambiguous reading in the middle of the story mm-hmm. where it could go either way, especially having yes. started with Sydney <laughs> 5 with an, a literal invasion. Mm-hmm. Like you're like... It, that that feeling of the shoe that could drop, and then mm-hmm. oh no, it, you know it doesn't go there. It, it that's a fun. That is absolutely a fun well, feeling. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also you know if you anybody who's had older parents, you know, um, like I, my grandmother sort of lost control of her house, and so it get kind of weird in there, you know, <laughs> with stuff <laughs> out of control and like this sort of feeling that when you realize oh, in the time I wasn't paying attention to them things have sort of gotten out of control um, and it can go right into horror. It's like, you know, this thing winding its way around the house. Um, but then I wanted to pull back and go, Nope, it's, it's, um, it's not that kind of story. Mm. Hmm. No. I, li- I like the layers in there. I like the layers a lot. Yeah. Now, that, that does lead me to ask because, you know, at the very beginning you mentioned that, you know, this is slow moving, apocalypse in the background that is absolutely cannot play out in a single human's lifetime when when lt meets doran for the first time and he is absolutely drunkenly going off on the space bees <laughs> i have to admit I, I i unreasonably loved that scene and and also every time that uh, that you refer to you know the the family characteristic of telling people things instead of <laughs> <laughs> like every day in my house <laughs> well yeah um, it's like you know, and, and there's a line at the end about sometimes the only way you can tell someone you love them is to tell them you know show them something beautiful and it's the same thing mm, with telling people things like yeah. people you know people of a certain mindset like myself you know it's like there's a joy in explaining like isn't this a cool thing that i read about yes. or that i've discovered <laughs> you want to share that thing and that becomes the only you know um Sometimes that's the only way you can say I love you. Mm-hmm. That's deep, man. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I, I did want to ask, 
if if you were to project this story out further, and I don't know if if you have that in your mind, would the space bees ever show up? Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, like one of the great things about writing short stories is I didn't have to decide. I just <laughs> so, and I don't even know if I could write that story. So I've never written about. I've never written aliens. Not really. Um, and so I always held back. There's a lot of tropes I haven't tackled in science fiction. Like I've never written a space opera yet. I've never. I, so I'm sort of easing my way up to it. And so there was something about writing this ambiguous uh, contact, this kind of first contact story where everybody's kind of trying to figure out. And Karen knows this from a lot of my fiction. Most of the time, my my characters are confused about what's going on and nobody has a definite <laughs> answer. Mm -hmm. I'm going back to my first novel where they didn't even know if they were in a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel. <laughs> uh, a person's going from psychologist to neurologist to uh, exorcist to try to figure out what's going on in their life. Um, mm -hmm. I like that kind of feeling where you don't know what kind of story you're in. and so. Um, so without having to write the aliens actually landing or, or any of that kind of thing, um, I could just say, sometimes we have to, we have to live most of our lives, not knowing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. We, and that's the way, and that's you know, my experience. In the world. What I also find fascinating is that, yes, it's a slow moving apocalypse, but then there's also a hint of, is this an apocalypse or is this just a change? Because humans are still adapting to it. We're adapting to each other. So there was a point where I was really strongly reminded of, um, you know, kind of like the fall of the Roman Empire when um, they're eagerly awaiting the barbarians to coming to the gate because it's a change, because it's something different, because it might be the thing that, you know, will kind of lift them out of, of the mess they've made of their own um, lives and government. And um, it's, it's kind of interesting that this doesn't really go into the whole climate change aspect of things. So there's nothing to explicitly say we've mucked up planet Earth. But at the same time, mm -hmm. there's also this hint of, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's some things that are going to come with this change that would be of greater benefit to us than if they'd never turned up. And it's just a, just a tiny hint of it. You're never still quite sure. You're still left in that exquisite mm -hmm. confusion, as it were. And you know you're not going to live long enough to find out what the answer really is. Um, the answer belongs right. to the historians. I like that. Well, you know, and science fiction lately has been doing a, a good job of this with climate change. You know, Toby Bacall, Tobias Bacall, that you, who you've written with, you know, um, has some beautiful moments from a, a, a climate changed world, a warming world. Stanley Robinson's uh, New York book, 2140, he dares to show us a world where climate change is sort of out of control. But New York, a flooded New York City is beautiful. It's, mm. it's like Venice. Um, mm -hmm. And and this idea that even in in the apocalypse um, there's beauty and it's constant change and people are still adapting that we're still going to find a way like it, it, as as for the current political moment it's I don't want to suggest that we that we give up that we're not doing climate change but also as a science fiction writer I do have this kind of feeling that we will continue to adapt right until the curtains close and we've, we've screwed <laughs> the planet so badly that the planet just kills us off. But as long <laughs> as we can, we'll still be trying to adapt and it won't be all one thing. It won't be all bad. There's still these beautiful things that can happen that mm -hmm. could, you know, you, at one hand you have plants that will be destroying agriculture in the Midwest. On the other hand, you get these beautiful things. We may figure out how to use them. So mm -hmm. I like that mixed message. 
I also liked the um, the idea that that LT's adopted daughter, you know, goes into a similar field, and she's like, "Ha ha, Dad! Look at everything you missed. You weren't looking at the ocean <laughs> <laughs> at that last moment." Because as a parent of a you know super geeky kid, you're like, "Oh, is there anything better when they show you something that you didn't think of?" Oh yeah, our whole—it seems like our whole job is to have our children surpass us. You know, um, my son, when he was, I think, twelve, said, um, "Well, Dad, when I start writing my novels, I'm going to change my name so I appear <laughs> earlier in the alphabet than you." I'm like, I'm like, man, that is so—that's cold. That's stone cold Oedipal. That's just knocking me right out. Wow. Um, but they, you know, like my kids are smarter than me, and they're—they're. They're, um, like I was always into music and theater and they are so much better musicians. They're better performers. So it's lovely when they surpass you. And I like this idea that in evolutionary terms, the one advantage humans have is that we can pass on culture and we can pass on knowledge. And so, yes, it's not, there's not going to be one scientist hero who's going to solve this problem in the course of the story. Like you'd know, do in a normal or an old fashioned science fiction story. No, the advantage we have is that you can raise scientists who will keep working on the problem, an entire culture <laughs> of scientists. Um, and I really like that idea that like, okay, we're short-lived, but we can, um, we get sort of this immortality. Um, yeah, we pass passing. the bat on. Yeah. And it doesn't depend on genes. Like I was, I was, I, 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 I like the, the idea that these are, this is an adopted daughter, but there are mm -hmm. certain traits of families that carry on there's like a cultural DNA that gets passed on. It doesn't depend on <laughs> yes. discrete genes. Hmm. That seems like an excellent note to sort of bring the conversation to a close. Karen, did you have any other points or questions you wanted to bring up? Um, no, I, I would just would like to say really that um, this this was a story that initially disturbed me, especially because of the whole kind of privileged person the apocalypse and um and just the kind of the, the stark reminder that that's how we are in real life and um but i uh, the, the subtlety of it the bits that were just so evocative the bits that were you know you that that took a turn you didn't expect but then gave you more pleasure and so forth i really enjoyed this because of how different it was and how just like quietly innovative it was so so yeah i mean i obviously need to read more of your stuff <laughs> oh so many books so little time right but yeah no i just i just love the approach and because you made me you, you made me angry at first and you made me think about it then you made me think oh well this bit's kind of nice and so just just like include all those emotions it's it's, it's all you can ever ask with a story yeah, what, can i ask you what the what the angry part was I really Not wanted to. I really wanted to smack mm -hmm. LT because the whole oh here's this invasive species that everybody says we need to be on the lookout for, but this is kind of cute, you know. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, this this could be what dooms us all, and you just want to bring it into your house because it looks nice. So there was this there was this element of um, they they they, they, they even though he was definitely more privileged near the end because of his government job and so on and so forth. Even his attitude at the beginning was of somebody who wasn't really accustomed to walking on a tightrope without a safety net. Right. And and that is what I reacted to badly. Because right. um they sometimes you do end up in a apocalypse type story with them and it's those people who always get the other people killed. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. 
Yeah, and he's a little kid and he's not thinking. I think um, Karen said this in the beginning. Like he's self-absorbed. He is. Mm-hmm. He's he's not keeping track of like how important these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he comes to understand it more later in his life. But yeah, it's yeah, he's he's completely a, <laughs> a child who's more concerned about his his mom's new creepy boyfriend than he is about mm-hmm. you know whether we should have turned in this plant or not. Yeah, yeah, but authentic. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> well, and, yeah. On my note, yeah, especially, um, you know, because I, I often think through either writing or or talking. When I when I was talking over this story with Karen, one thing that I enjoy about this story in particular is that, you know, your stereotypical science fiction story foregrounds the the world building and the plot, and it backgrounds the characters. That's always the critique Ooh. of science fiction. I'm starting to expand that critique to other genres as I'm reading more and more and <laughs> more volumes of short fiction. I'm like, oh, it's not just science fiction, my friends. But mm-hmm. yeah, but but again, that's the stereotype, right? That that science fiction it, it's world building and plot first, character second. And here right. you've got this this lovely sort of exponential and again Fibonacci sequence um sampling of a one person's life that is obviously continuous that it, it obviously all the segments speak to each other and then you get this entire change of the entire world literally mm-hmm. happening in the background in just those little details like Karen mentioned you know now there are checkpoints at state borders and now you need a government credential to move from one place to another and you know and there's a you know famine happening here and refugees happening there and and that inversion where you know it's the life that's foregrounded and the world that's backgrounded which really is as we've all said in this discussion that really is how we live our lives um mm-hmm. but there's a complete story in both cases there's a complete life and there's a complete you know it's not a completed arc of the world building because as you say that story is going to unfold out over centuries at the minimum right but you get both stories, and and I just love the way this this story does that. Well, I could yeah. let me just say that as as a writer, uh, it's it to have anybody do a close reading like you guys have done with the story is it's just so thrilling because most Aww. of the time you're you're there, you know, you're writing alone. You're like, well, we'll see if anybody <laughs> if anybody is paying attention. Um, and it's so uh, it's so lovely to have this. It's very flattering to have this kind of conversation, but also it just this is why I like being in the field of science fiction because we have venues to talk about these stories deeply. And I just yes. really enjoy, you know, the conversation, every story you write as a science fiction writer is in conversation with certain other stories in the genre. And, you know, this is definitely a gourmet kind of story in that it's not hitting all the power chords. It's more in reaction to other kinds of science fiction stories, uh, like Karen was saying. Um, so I'm just thrilled that you guys took the time. This is great to be able to talk about it. So thank you for having me on so much. No, completely our pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. So with that, we can probably bring things to a close. Um, Daryl, is there anything you want to let the world know about? Obviously, you were a world fi- fiction, uh, uh, sorry, a world fantasy nominee for Spoonbenders. Is there anything that we should be on the lookout for coming coming soon? No, like, you know, uh, this is the life of the writer. I had a brief period where I was really prolific because several things in the pipeline all came out within months of each other. And you're like, oh, my God, he's just he's just churning it out. No, there's things in the pipeline 
uh, where we have no dates for the novel I'm working on now. There's no date for. So uh, I'll just say thank you for reading that story. And uh, as far as I know, it'll be, you know, forever until the next book comes out. So <laughs> okay, no worries. Not- we'll be patiently waiting. <laughs> All right, great. Okay, I will bring the recording to the close. Don't feel like you have to immediately drop off. But with that, I will say thank you so much for coming. And uh, we will see everybody in a little bit with an interview with Kidge Johnson as well. So thanks so much for listening.